0: Warning, The Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. The Westwood One Podcast Network presents The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Thursday night will be Biden, Sanders, and the other nobodies trying to outdo each other, and I could just imagine Sanders. I could just imagine how they're going to try to outdo each other with leftist giveaways and leftist slanders of the American people. I could just imagine Sanders saying, well, I would like to say this. I think that we need to burn all the uh, conservative books that have been published in the last five or so years. They have uh, poisoned the uh, the nation. Now, I'm not saying we should do this in a vicious way. I think there is a kind way to burn books, and I think that we should look into this. And then, of course, the next one will have to escalate it and say, that we have to burn the authors of the conservative books? Then the next one will say, I go a step further, and uh, I think we should burn the publishing houses down. Yay, yay, yay. That's the world we're living in today. What options we have A Savage Life is published today. And I know many of you want to talk about that. I'm going to ask one question about my book, A Savage Life, which is this. Do you think A Savage Life should be, should be my last book, or should I do one last Trump book to help him win the election? I am being asked to do one last Trump book, I am not sure I want to do one last Trump book, uh, because if it has to be too honest, you're going to say, I don't want to buy that book. I think that all of you really want a cheerleading book, and it may be what needs to be done. There are plenty of people who can write cheerleading books to help Trump win. I'm certainly going to vote for Trump, don't get me wrong, but I, I stand clear on it. I'm going to be a critic where criticism is necessary. I thought that the waffling on the Iran strike last week was an embarrassment. If Obama had done it, we wouldn't have heard the joke stop about what a waffler he was and how weak he was. Uh, when, When did it become not right to criticize your own side? If you have a family member who you don't think is living up to what he can be doing, don't you say, you know, John, come on, man, you can do better than that. Or, John, you said you would do this. I'm on your side, John. I'm always with you. But really, you're wrong on this, John. What is wrong with criticizing in a positive way? In fact, without criticizing a family member in a positive way, people get worse, not better. So that's my opinion. That's where I'm going. But again, I want to ask you, again, A Savage Life is out today in the bookstores. Have you gone to the bookstores? Was it buried under Mary has six mothers or under Johnny has 17 fathers and lives on Castro Street? Have you been to your local bookstore to find the book? Were the employees in the store courteous to you? Did you get negative looks and comments when you asked for Michael Savage's A Savage Life? Uh, What have the book clerks told you about the book? Was the book front and center in the store, or was it buried underneath children's books? Who do you think needs to read A Savage Life? I want to reiterate, it is not a political book. It's a book of stories. Uh, Stories of an immigrant's son who actually did wear dead man's pants, who actually (laughs) did wear dead man's pants as a child, because we were so poor that I had to wear them who grew up to be who I am today, a radio star and a, let us say, literary star. Am I allowed to say it? Or did I not hear that right? Well, if you have, what, how many seven bestsellers? You can call yourself a literary success, couldn't you? Or what, it hasn't been approved in San Francisco, therefore I'm not a literary star? Well, the fact is, is I went from nothing to something. I can't say I went from rags to riches, but I did. But that's the story. It's the American dream, and I lived it. And guess what? Nobody helped me once. Nobody helped me. Nobody helped me except my mother and father who taught me how to think and stand on my own two feet in plain English. That's that's the story. I had no inheritance, none, zero. So don't assume there was an inheritance, zero, no inheritance. And that's that's life, and it's a very important life, and I, I think that it's worth reading because I think it's an inspiration. So which story is your favorite? Again, I'm going to say today what I said yesterday. This is a talk show. If you do not call the show, it is not talk and in order for me to continue going on this show, you need to participate. I cannot and will not do this on my own. I'm not uh, going to compete with anyone else and say anything about any other host. I need callers. With that as an introduction and my leading question of should this Savage Life book be my last book or do you think I should do one last Trump book to help him win the election published some time before the election, I will begin now by reading some of my favorite passages from the book. Or maybe, well, this is good. Pennies for Beethoven. That's not bad. I like that one. Boy in the Basement. I read from that yesterday. What would you like? Uh, how about how I got into radio? Would that be of any interest to you? Nah, it's boring. You want me to hear how I got into radio? How about slum dialect? I think I'll read about slum dialect. Many people are embarrassed by their uh, immigrant accents, and they should never be that. Let me read this to you. because I come from parents who... Uh, We're not uh, Americans originally. How I learned to speak is very intriguing, given that I'm an immigrant son. My father emigrated from Russia when he was seven years old, and he had a slight accent, but not a very pronounced one. Having grown up in the tenements of the Bronx, I had somewhat of a slum dialect until I went to college. I remember entering speech 101. I was asked to give a speech. We were told to listen to recordings of Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt as examples of two of the greatest speakers of the time. It's interesting as I write that, by the way, uh, looking back on it, I can see why the speech teacher chose the two of them. In other words, Churchill, conservative, and Delano Roosevelt, Delano Roosevelt uh, a, a far-left socialist. It's interesting. I didn't know it was a political choice. Okay, I was ashamed to speak publicly at the time. I had a private conference with my speech teacher, who was a very nice man, and he said to me, Michael, you have a wonderful speaking voice. I said, but I say dem and dos and this and that. He said, don't worry about that. He said, just speak and eventually that will be forgotten. And that's how I learned to dare speak in front of groups where I got the confidence to speak publicly. This is how I learned to give speeches through the confidence given to me by this wonderful speech teacher at Queens College of the City University of New York. I always had a good speaking voice going back to the first grade. See, I was made the announcer in the first grade. Why? Because I was the only kid in my class with a blue suit God bless my mother. She bought me a blue suit, white shirt and tie. So the teacher said, Michael, because you have a suit, you're going to be the announcer. I'll never forget getting up in front of that audience. I love the feeling of looking at all those kids staring at me. I guess you might say I was born to lead audiences. Now, this is an example of the kind of stories that are in this book. They're short. They're not long. Well, one of the, a few of them are quite long. Most of them are very short like that. Short little takes on things. How about nightclub? We have time for nightclub. Okay, Nightclub, Found in a Savage Life. By the way, each one of these vignettes is as good as a Maupassant story, for those of you who know who Guy de Maupassant was. And any one of them, any one of these could be a whole movie, by the way. If I took Nightclub and fleshed it out into a screenplay, it would be a hell of a story, by the way. It would be as good as a Bronx tale or any of those stories. So let's see how long this one is. Wow, well, it's too long for the radio show. But I'll start with it. Nightclub. The bar was dark, like a scene out of The Godfather. We sat next to the long, dark mahogany bar at a small table. The steak was served. I had never eaten steak that was this soft. In fact, I didn't know that steak was supposed to be soft. The only steaks I had ever eaten before were hard, rubbery, difficult to cut. This one cut like butter. The tough man served us without a smile. We were the only ones in there on a Saturday afternoon. It was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, in what was known as Yorktown, a German neighborhood. It was owned by my friend's father, Jackie Hart, who was the toughest guy in the neighborhood. He was a professional gambler and a club owner, long before anyone knew what that meant. All the other men were either small businessmen with tiny little stores, or they worked in the trades or in the garment center. Jackie was a guy right out of the Godfather. He was quiet. He hardly ever spoke. Everyone respected him, and everyone feared him. We had gotten downtown not by trains, but by one of the hard men from the bar had been sent up to get us by car to eat in Jackie's bar. There are many stories about Jackie. This was one of them. The one about the soft steak served by the hard man. That's I like that line. The soft steak served by the hard man. Another story about Jackie that comes to mind occurred around the same period when I was seven, eight, nine years old in the Catskill Mountains, where most of the families from our apartment building retreated to what were known as bungalow colonies. In essence, small villages that were rented for the summer. Each family rented a small cottage. This was paradise lost. One summer, my family, Jackie's family, probably 10 others from the same tenement, all rented individual cottages or bungalows at the same place. It was on a long, sloping, grassy hill with a swimming pool. This summer, a huge fight had broken out between the owners of the bungalow colony and this group of the men from the Bronx. It was very unusual for these men to engage in a fight, but fight they did. It started over an insult thrown at one of our neighboring women by the owner in the little grocery store, that belonged to and was run by the bungalow colony owner. Who knows what it was over? But it was a huge fight that went on for most of the day, and it ended up with Fat Pat the bookie dragging one of the brothers around the property by his collar, pulling him on the grass until he gave up, but he wouldn't give up. Fat Pat kept pulling around telling him, it's time you gave up, but the guy wouldn't give up. Jackie Hart, on the other hand, got into a fist fight with one of them and bashed the guy's head in. The guy bit him on the forearm, and as you may know, human bites are far more deadly than dog bites. It took him months for that wound to heal. See, Jackie was a street fighter long before he was a bar owner, growing up in the Yorktown area of New York. He told a story years later to us young kids about the period during World War II when there was an actual Nazi party in New York City and other places sympathetic to Hitler. Jackie was on a subway car when one of the American Nazis jumped up and started to scream, "Kill the Jews, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. Jackie was not a man given to words. He didn't react with words. He said, he said he waited until the subway car stopped at a train station. He grabbed the man and smashed his head between the car and the platform until he was a bloody pulp. And then he left without a word. That was Jackie Hart. That's a bit of the story nightclub. This is the Savage Nation reading from A Savage Life. If you've heard any of this elsewhere, you're lying to yourself. Savage. Reading from my book out today, Savage Life. This story is one page long. It's called Boy in the River. I realize the great president is about to speak, but for the first time in my life, I'm not cutting away for him. I've had enough already. Give me an hour's break from it. I thought we can get through one day without him. One day, just one day without another grandstanding. Please, one day. What's this one going to be about? I'm going to attack Iran, but I'm not going to attack Iran. I'm going to round them up. I'm not going to round them up. Roundup is not good. We're not going to sue Monsanto. So I'm going to read from Boy in the River. Here it is. Notice the photo of my father standing in the Neversink River in the Catskill Mountains. See interior photo insert. He was a young man then, and I was about three or four years old. An incident occurred then that has shaped my life. You see, there was a large waterfall not far from there that we kids were warned to avoid. South Fallsburg, New York was the location. My dad and I were upriver, me and a large inner tube splashing around protected by my father, comma, or so I thought. He began to maneuver the tube, so I was upriver from him, and the waterfall, with the strong current running towards him and down, down, down to the churning white falls. As he pushed me away from him and away from the direction of the waterfall, he said, I'm pushing you over the waterfalls. And with a smile, he pushed me. I began to cry. In fact, I lost my little head, fearing he was sending me to my death. As the current took me towards him, He grabbed onto my tube and said, Oh, don't worry. I was just kidding. Since then, I have never completely trusted anyone. Maybe he did me a favor, knowing people in the world. Maybe he did this because he wanted to toughen me up. Who really knows? But this was my Abraham and Isaac moment. And I don't think it was God who told him to fake pushing me over the waterfall, only to tell him not to at the last minute. It's a perfect short story. And it tells you an awful lot about life and about myself. And I'm starting to think, You know, I I watch a lot of TV at night, I'll be honest with you. And I tend to watch series, sequences on Netflix. I'm particularly favored. I like to watch Mexican dramas in Spanish with English subtitles because I relearn the language, number one. But I learn an awful lot about Mexican culture. It's a whole different world. Of course, it's fictionalized. I get it. But I learn about machismo in a way I could never understand it in the American culture. And I wonder how the Mexican father raises the son i wonder how a particular particularly how an uh uneducated not professionally practicing mexican father would raise a son in the mean streets of guadalajara i wonder if he'd raise him to be kind and gentle or if he too might take him to a river and push him upstream telling his pushing him over the falls to make him understand never to trust anybody even his own father i don't know I just don't know about other cultures, and I, do, I just don't know to this day whether my father was doing me a favor or, you know, making me crazy. I just don't really know. You can't tell. But, you know, at a certain point in your life, you got to stop looking back or you turn to salt. And what you got to do is live with who you are and just accept who you are and realize you're not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect person or a perfect city or a perfect state or a perfect weather or a perfect university or a perfect president. It's that simple. That's all. Now, what are we doing? We're waiting for the great speech to come up? I, I just can't believe it. I thought I was going to get through a day. Texas James, you're on the Savage Nation. What's on your mind?
1: Oh, hi, uh, Savage. <clears throat> well, I do like you listening uh, listening to you read your stories, and because uh, you're a very good speaker, and I really enjoy when you read your stories. And that's most of your book. All right.
0: You know, okay, I understand. I'm sending you a Savage Life. A lot of people want me to do an audio book of my own book. I haven't done it. You know, you know why. I don't have the patience to read my own stories from beginning to end and record them. I just don't have the patience for it. You know, I'm a gotta. I, I gotta keep moving. I'm like a rolling stone, and like a real rolling stone, as opposed to a fictional rolling stone. I gotta keep moving forward. I can't. I can't. I can't work on the backward. I can't dwell in the past. You know, I can't do remember when, like is suddenly becoming popular in talk radio right now, talking about when you remember when remember when clinton was president and when hillary was president that's called remember when the lowest form of talk radio we don't do remember when on this show and i can't do remember when by reading my own stories i mean i'm only going to do this on my book today and tomorrow because i do want you to buy a copy for yourself and i think your kids are going to love it but i think a more pointed question is the one i asked in the beginning and i don't know whether i'll get to all of them today which is should this be my last book or should i do one last trump book to help him win the election, because I will. Just think about what I'm saying to you. If my next Trump book, which, by the way, the last book on Trump was called Trump's War, it became number one on the New York Times bestseller list, number one, number one, number one, without any help from the media. If I were to sell even 100,000 copies of the next Trump book, that would put him over the finish line. Think about it. Savage. Realize that the president's about to speak to give the Medal of Honor to a hero from Iraq's uh, horrible war in Fallujah, I believe. I find it very interesting that all of a sudden he's giving medals, medals of honor now to military in the middle of the day. I guess they're getting ready for a war or two. Uh, so now he's got to get the American people to start thinking about the military again in a positive way. And, and what could be better than giving a Medal of Honor to a hero, a real hero, who has a Hispanic last name? You get a twofer out of that. Very clever, very good, smart politics, good press secretary working. By the way, they just appointed a new press secretary who is the first lady's uh, press secretary. Lovely lady, very dignified, very smart. I met her last year. I think she's great. I think she's going to do a wonderful job. But I'm going to go back to my book. I'm going to read you a little bit of a story here. Yes or no? Buddy needs to know, do you want me to read another story or two from A Savage Life? Yeah, Mike, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I did "Boy in the River." I did the uh, the nightclub. I like. Should I finish the nightclub? Because I don't have a lot of time. All right, so I'll go back to Jackie Hart, who beat up the Nazi on the subway car and smashed his head into a. I grabbed the man and smashed his head between the car and the platform until he was a bloody pulp, and then left without a word. That was Jackie Hart. Jackie told us boys about a fight from his childhood that landed him in the hospital for over six months. He'd gotten into a fight with a guy he called the toughest man he ever met in his life. Who knows what it was over? Who knows what people fight over to begin with? I don't really remember the man's name. But I met him years later, and he was absolutely intimidating and frightening. Another man, a few words. In fact, this other man spoke no words whatsoever. But when you shook this man's hand, even as a little kid, it was like holding a catcher's mitt. It was all calluses. He wouldn't even close his hand for fear he would crush your hand. All he did was smile. He was very devoted to his wife who was very homely. Nevertheless, this man who had beaten Jackie when he was a boy and they had gotten into a fight over something and it landed Jackie in the hospital for several months, this guy came to the hospital every day during his recovery and sat with him even though they hadn't known each other before the fight and then afterwards they became lifetime friends. Could you believe this? Years later, as it would turn out, Jackie had a son, my best friend Davey, who was actually my protector because he was a tough kid, really tough. He wouldn't let anyone do anything to any of his friends. He also had a daughter named Darlene. His daughter went into the arts, and she wound up dead from an overdose in a Manhattan hotel. Jackie's wife went to pieces. Not only could she not take care of herself, she couldn't talk, couldn't eat, couldn't cook. There were no psychiatrists in those days, not for poor people. There was no closure in those days, not for poor people. There was just heartbreak and grief and friends. And that's where my saintly mother came in. For weeks and months. I can't even read it. Only take some, I, some of these stories actually are making me get too, too tightened up. I can't take it. But well, for weeks and months, my mother would go to her apartment, cook for her, bathe her, take care of her, and she slowly got over the death of her daughter. I mean, that's the way people were. Are there any people like that left? I doubt it. If I dropped dead in this room, they wouldn't even find me for a week. That's the world we live in. The only one who would be at the funeral would be my dog if he could find his way to the the grave all right michigan brad welcome to the savage nation how are you
2: uh doing well dr savage i thought i'd chime in since you've had a couple less callers lately apparently but uh, i'm planning on uh getting your new book here i thought i could get it during lunchtime but i wasn't able to sneak away
0: oh that's sweet of you i'm sending you a free copy of a savage life what's your main point you just want to support me by calling right
2: yeah i just wanted to support you i heard you earlier uh, asking for callers well
0: that's nice that's nice brad in michigan what city are you living in thanks for the call you got to keep him on the line because i'll lose him by the way that was brad in michigan let's go to new york paul line six you're up on the savage nation what's on your mind
1: dr savage there could be no one else like you we are so fortunate to have you
0: i know you know it paul paul listen We're all unique. We're all different. I'm different than anyone else in the history of radio. I know that. And some love it and some don't love it. And it's a style that can't be copied. It's just an intuitive, natural style. And I've, over these years, attracted people like yourself who like it. It's that simple. And uh, are you Paulie the cigar guy?
1: No, I'm not. I'm I'm Paulie the guy that worked for uh, Trump. Oh, wow. Wow.
0: Yeah, I remember you calling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you think? What do you think's going on with him, with the Iran and then the the, the raids that didn't happen? What's going on in your opinion?
1: I, you know, I think he's in a defensive posture, and uh, they're pulling a lot of strings. You know, the, he's got the uh, the hawks around him, and he's got the peace and he's trying to appease everybody because he wants to get reelected, and he's hoping to to unload his salvo then. And he's he's just uh. in a crouch right now.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I see you, you talk the real language. How did you work with the president?
1: Well, believe it or not, uh, my first job, I was uh, a chef at the Oyster Bar. Yeah, and he used to come in? He came in once in a while, but he did the same thing there that he did to Trump Tower. They, he had people go up and see him. They would come down, and if there was somebody important, I told the guys, let me know. And I would come out and meet them I, I,
0: Wait, what did he own? did the Trump own the oyster bar? Yes, he did with his, oh, I didn't know that Ivana. he
1: owned the oyster bar
0: in the Grand Central Station
1: no, there was an oyster bar at the um Plaza hotel. It was the busiest restaurant in the hotel, oh at the plaza, okay. he got the that was chef from the oyster bar at Grand Central okay over- so you were a chef, yes. Wow, that's a
0: big story unto itself. Well, you would rel- you would relate to my stories. You come from the same menu, right?
1: Yeah, I do. But I, I got a great story about him, if, if you give me two seconds. Go ahead, fire away. There was this not-so-nice guy, you know, he's you know, the food and beverage managers in New York. They could be a little, uh, if I can use the word, sleazy. And, you know, Trump's management style, he knew everything. And everything went right up to the top. Well, there, you know, it was, it was time to, for this guy to go, I guess, because he comes in one day and there's a new guy at the desk, he's British, and this guy's desk was in the hall. <laughs> I heard that, you know, he came back into everything comes into the kitchen, right? Dishes and, and the leftovers and information. And they said, you know, that's, that's the way he is. That's how we got rid of him. How? I didn't
0: follow you. How did he get rid of
1: him? He, the, the guy was like, well, where do I work? You're at my desk. Well, your desk is in the hall. And you can work there from now on. <laughs> Trump had his desk moved into the hall.
0: Yes, he did. <laughs> well, did he give him at least a dozen oysters to go with it? I don't think so. Oh <laughs> uh, man, I don't. I don't eat raw oysters, but I get the joke. So he had the desk moved into the hall. I don't want is His management. His management style is not too different today. I think he moves out the desk into the hall when he wants them to go. Exactly.
1: Right. Exactly. I, I. You know. I think he depends too much on. You know what he sees on TV, and then he relies a lot on his instincts. But I, I think he ought to hold back and pull the reins back a little bit and just you know observe the field a little bit more, like a, like a general should. Well,
0: I, I hear you, man. I hear you. We're, we're still on his side. Yeah, we'd I, like, we're, we're still on his side, but we'd like, to, we'd like to see a different management style than the one we've been seeing recently. And I'm sending you a savage life to enjoy over the uh, July 4th week. It came
1: in the mail. It just came in the mail today.
0: Oh, you ordered it on your own? Yes, I did, sir. Wow, someone spent five bucks on a... I can't believe it. The first page I opened to,
1: I saw your mother's beautiful face. Oh, and you were right God. behind her in the, in the Queen's apartment. Yeah. And she's cooking something. He says, cooking for an army. And that's exactly how I grew up.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting picture. There's Mama Savage in a little Queen's kitchen where she cooked for an army. Yeah. A little four-burner stove in a narrow little passageway in, a, in an attached house, right? But she could cook gourmet meals without reading a cookbook. That was the type. And, yeah. uh, you know, I found out years later that her mother, my grandmother, was a single mother and raised the children as a cook in a hotel. I never knew that. My grandmother, who lived very short a short life, died very young also from overwork and stress, raising the children alone. But she was a cook. So my mother grew up in a, a family of chefs. I guess I got my love for food. That's a shock. It's a surprise to me. That I don't own a restaurant, to be honest with you. But everybody I know who's been in the restaurant business, and I've known quite a few, have told me, do not go into this business. Every one of them says the same thing. <laughs> yeah, It's, it's, right.
1: it's a great, crazy business, but it's a great, crazy life, too. So you know, what, what, Well,
0: it's people, you know. you got to like people, and you got to like the, the hectic uh, health, the skelter thing that goes on there. Hey, thanks for that call, man. I love your support coming out of New York. I know you're listening online uh, on the uh, Savage Nation, 855 400 7282, and many people are calling now about, uh, yes, Mike, you must write another Trump book. He needs you, uh, and things like that, and I do appreciate that. Uh, Oregon, Sam, Line 5, you're on the Savage Nation. What's on your mind?
2: How
1: you doing, Doctor? Nice
2: nice to talk to you. What's up? Uh, You know, I I tried to get in yesterday. Uh, I was wondering, can you share maybe any anecdotes uh, of the Special Forces guy?
0: No, because I was an interloper. All I did was give a little speech to them, and it was the great honor for me to be around heroes like that. And I felt very humble to be around the real heroes. I did. I did. I read the speech yesterday. Did you hear it that I gave? It's a short, short, one-page speech. Yes. I didn't finish it though. I remember that I started it but didn't finish it. That that's the anecdote. There's nothing more to say. The anecdote is that. Okay. Laura, Albany, New York, thank you for calling from the nation's, not capital, but the capital <laughs> of New York State. Laura, what's on your mind?
2: Oh, I, I want to thank you for your book. Uh, I'm excited to read it. You have brought me back to my childhood. Uh, I grew up in Rockland County, and every night, uh, probably Monday to Friday, 10 to 11, I would be in bed, supposed to be asleep, and my dad would turn on W-O-R-A-M and, uh, in mom and dad's bedroom, and he would listen to Gene Shepard.
0: Oh, Gene was great.
2: Oh my goodness! I strained.
0: Now they have clowns on who couldn't hold a candle to Gene Sock.
2: No, and you—you know—you are the first radio personality I have found. And my husband's a ham radio operator, so he knows radio. You're the first person I found. I three o'clock here in Albany, New York, Monday to Friday. You know, I'm listening to you. I've got it on my calendar. So yeah, no, I
0: come from that tradition. I agree with you in this. Yeah, sense. and
2: all the all the places you mentioned in the Catskills. Mom and Dad and my brother and I used to go fishing on the Beaver Kill, the, the, you know, the west branch of the Beaver Kill, uh, the little town of
0: Shinopple. I, 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 I bet you still feel the cold water on your feet from oh when you Lord, were a kid. Do you, how, do you remember how cold that river was?
2: It was freezing. and I, was
0: I remember crossing the Never Sink River in a hot July afternoon. In fact, it's the story um, loved by the sewer plant, incidentally. I crossed the river with somebody as a kid. My feet turned blue from the cold water. Could you believe it in the middle of the summer?
1: Savage.
0: I am talking about today's launch of my book, A Savage Life, which you can pick up in a bookstore if you wish, featuring exclusive, never before published new material. And uh, it does expose a part of me or parts of me that you may not be aware of, but they explain the person I am and why you like the show. And it's talk it's very personal. It's very revealing. And it writes of being so poor as a child that he had to wear a dead man's pants, true. Of uh, the various trials that beset his parents and silent brother Jerome, who was sent to an institution. Of his botanical expeditions to the islands of the Fijis and Samoa and Tonga in the 1970s of his unexpected rise as a radio host, and most of all of his family, a sustaining force throughout. You know, the word Fiji just triggered me. I was in Fiji before it was a water. And uh, I, I, I drink Fiji water. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, this is a side topic. I've been meaning to talk about it for weeks now. They, they take billions of bottles of water out of the aquifer of the Fiji Islands. Does anyone know out there if this could go on? Is this sustainable? Am I allowed to ask this question? Is there anyone out there who understands this, who is a hydrologist? Can you, is there an unlimited supply of water from an aquifer? How can you take water out of the aquifer of the Fiji Islands, put it in billions of bottles or hundreds of millions of bottles forever? How does that go on? Where does the water come from? Now, I've been there and I've seen rivers, tropical rivers, rise eight feet in in an hour. I was once on a botanical expedition. We, We crossed a river that was rather low. And we tried to go back. We couldn't go back for two days because it had rained and the river rose eight feet. So I do know that there's an awful lot of water that comes through these islands. But I'm asking another question. Is the water unlimited? And what about the Fijian people? Do they make any money from this water? Uh, Who makes that money? Where does it go? I'm very concerned about the use of resources on the planet, both in the United States of America and abroad. I don't like trees being stripped out. I don't like the death of the redwood trees. I never did even in the 70s. I don't like the open pit mining. I don't like hunting animals to extinction. I am a conservationist, and proudly so. This is Michael Savage. Thanks for listening.
2: The Westwood One Podcast Network.